0: Have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew 27 this morning. We want to look at verses 45 through 50. You say, Are you sure you're going to get a full message out of this? I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know it on the overhead. We are in Matthew, and uh, the theme is Christ the King, and we are in that section, the Passion of the King, in chapter 26 and 27. Matthew 27 presents the record of the death and burial of Christ. And building up to that, we have Christ on trial. There were three religious trials followed by three civil trials in which the Jews were totally pressing for the death penalty, for the death of the cross all along the way. Finally, Pilate, who really didn't want to go along with this, gave in to their demands and gave the order for Christ to be crucified. Now, the activity surrounding the cross was essentially that of, if you're looking for one word to define it, it would be mockery, mockery. Pilate mocked Jesus by putting a sign over his cross, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Ha, that's laughable, it's on a cross, this is the king of the Jews, total mockery. Those passing by blasphemed him, challenging him that if he were the Son of God to come down from the cross. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were all mocking, saying, if he is the King of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. They mocked his trusting God, saying, in effect, that if he truly was the Son of God, then God would deliver him. And even the robbers, those two men who were crucified on either side of Christ, They too reviled him, it says, although one of them later repented. Christ was on the cross for about six hours, from 9 a.m. in the morning until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. The first three hours, it was light, and the emphasis is on that of rejection and the mockery of men. For the last three hours, darkness enveloped the land. And the emphasis is on God's wrath being poured out on Jesus as the one who was judged for the sins of the world. Our study today involves the last three hours of Christ on the cross where the experience of the cross comes to a climax and conclusion. We pick it up, Matthew 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Now, the Jews calculated the timing, how they kept uh, the time of the day uh, differently than the Romans did. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all used Jewish time calculations. And for the Jews, the daylight hours were measured from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. So the sixth hour was noon, and the ninth hour was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Mark fifteen twenty five indicates that it was at the third hour, that is 9 a.m., that they crucified Jesus. So the sixth hour was noon, and Jesus had, at this point, been on the cross for about three hours. Now it says, at the ninth hour, that is noon, it was dark over all the land until 3 p.m., from the sixth to the ninth hour. Uh, And uh, at that point, Jesus gave up his spirit and died. Now, when it says a darkness, uh, there was darkness over all the land. uh, The darkness spoken of here was supernaturally imposed. You see, Passover was always a full moon, uh, never a time of solar eclipse, never. So this darkness was truly a God thing, supernaturally imposed. Now, darkness in the Bible is often associated with God's judgment. For example, just a couple examples here. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. There was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. God was bringing his judgments down on Egypt. And then, as we see in Isaiah chapter 5, well, this is 53. Oh, it's right below the other one. That's how that works. (laughs) Let's 5.30. In that day, they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and sorrow. Again, a context of judgment. And the light is darkened by the clouds. Well, the Bible speaks of an especially bad category of demons who are held in chains of darkness. 2 Peter 2.4, Jude 6... Jesus repeatedly spoke of divine judgment, ultimately in terms of outer darkness, the fate of unbelievers. This darkness at the cross, in effect, pictured God turning his back on the Son, who became sin for us. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God cannot look upon sin in the sense that he can have no fellowship with it, this period of darkness portrays Jesus being the sin offering for the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is where our salvation was wrought. And now on to that next slide. Isaiah 53, 6. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Holman Christian Study Bible, the bystanders naturally interpreted the darkness as God's judgment. While they likely thought the judgment was against Jesus, as if he was a heretic, in light of his later resurrection, believers came to see the darkness as judgment against the sin that Jesus became on our behalf. Now, when it says there was darkness over all the land, there is discussion whether this was a, just a local phenomenon, or whether it was universal over all the earth. The word language, you see, can be understood either way. Uh, God is sovereign. He could supernaturally make it dark either locally or universally. He could do it either way, obviously. Extra-biblical literature might suggest that it was worldwide. One Roman historian wrote, The day turned into dark night, so the stars of heaven were seen, and there was an earthquake. Numerous historical accounts lead us, some of us to think that perhaps it was a worldwide phenomenon. Now, it would seem that God, with this darkness, was making a universal statement at the cross that He was judging sin. We know what happened there. Isaiah 53, 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Who? The Lord. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. Now, we know men were carrying it out, but God is sovereign behind what's happening He, God, has put him to grief. He put the sin of the world on him. He's God's lamb. He's God's sacrifice. We're the the reason behind it. I mean, it's our sin, but God did it. He put him to grief. When you, speaking of the Lord, make his soul an offering for sin, that's what's being portrayed here. He shall see his seed; he shall prolong his days. Speaking of the of the aftermath, the resurrection, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse forty six. And about the ninth hour, this is right about noon. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it seems that. Eli-Eli was probably spoken in Hebrew. And then Lama Sabathkimi was Aramaic. This is a quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Uh, We read there, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, David wrote this back in Psalm 22. And what David felt like in his experience was supernaturally... or or not supernatural, supremely experienced by Jesus at the cross. Uh, Psalm 22 is commonly called the crucifixion psalm as it at so many points connects with and portrays Christ's experience on the cross. By the way, this was not an intellectual question because Christ knew exactly what was happening and he knew why it was happening. This was really a human expression of feeling abandoned and estranged by God the Father. It was a human cry of anguish and despair. To forsake means to abandon, to desert, to leave behind. Now there is great mystery here that we can never comprehend. Luther said, God forsaken of of God, who can understand it? Well, amen to that. This, I think, was the worst part of the cross experience. You see, Jesus had forever and always only known the closest of intimate fellowship with the Father. But now, as he became sin for us, the Father could not be in fellowship with that reality. Here, Jesus had to go all alone. This was when God the Father made His soul an offering for sin. As Galatians 3.13 says, This is when Christ became, quote, a curse for us. This is the cry of the Holy One experiencing the curse of sin. ESV Study Bible, Jesus' torment, despite His anticipations of it in Gethsemane, was surely inconceivable in advance. I mean, the full impact of it until he was there was probably, you know, inconceivable. Alexander Metherell says, the pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word. You know what the new word they invented was? Excruciating literally excruciating means out of the cross. This was the black night of the soul, that is, hell. Jesus, in effect, took our hell on the cross. You see, hell is ultimately separation from God. The wages of sin is death, and death means separation. When we die physically, our soul is separated from our body. And if we die in our sin, we will be eternally, spiritually separated from God for all eternity. In the lake of fire. To die in our sin is ultimately hell, eternal separation from God. This is the equivalent of what Jesus suffered and experienced on the cross. He took our hell, the separation from God that we deserve. Dave Hunt says, we have violated infinite justice. And we being finite beings owe an infinite debt. We as finite beings could never pay the debt. God could because he's infinite. But it wouldn't be just because he's not a member of our race. So that's why God became a man through the virgin birth. God and man met together in one. Jesus never ceased to be God, and he never ceased to be man. He's the one and only God-man. Because of who he is as the God-man, he could pay the infinite debt we could never pay. That's the message of the gospel. Note that in this experience of becoming sin, Jesus addressed the Father as god without calling Him Father. And by the way, this is the only place in the Synoptic Gospels where that is the case. As taking the place of the sinner in that place, in that condition, he was treated as a sinner, although he himself was without personal sin. And you see, sinners don't know God as their father. Paul describes sinners as having no hope and without God in the world. And again, those that are alienated from the life of God. The cry of Christ here in Matthew 27, 46 is reflective of Him being in the position of the sinner. The Father forsook the Son because the Son took upon Himself our transgressions, our iniquities. Jesus was delivered up because of our transgression and died for our sins according to the scriptures. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He became a curse for us. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, and became the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. D.A. Carson, in this cry, the horror of the world's sin and the cost of our salvation is revealed. The experience of hell is to be completely God forsaken. When Jesus says to the lost on judgment day, depart from me, they will depart from him. Never to be with him for all eternity. It is to be all alone in your misery, forever separated from God. People in their depraved arrogance and ignorance often talk about wanting to go to hell so they can party with their friends. Well, this just in, there is no party in hell. They will all together experience the forsakenness, the God-forsakenness of isolation forever and ever with no way out. John MacArthur writes, This abandoning was not a splitting of the person of God, but was the segregation of the holy from the sinful to the degree that the Son could not sense the presence of and communion with the other members of the Godhead. God neither broke off His essential being from the Son, nor stopped loving Him, But the Father did turn His holiness away from participating in the Son's human experience at this time of sin-bearing. As I say, deep mystery here. How could that all be? Uh, We'll never fully comprehend. Uh, David Gazik makes this uh, footnote, and it's a good one. At the same time, we cannot say that the separation between the Father and the Son at the cross was complete. Paul made this clear in 2 Corinthians 5.19 when he said God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the cross. So that is also true. How wonderful, however, this is. You see, because the Son was forsaken by the Father, we as believers will never be forsaken by God. Jesus took our hell of separation for us so that we will never experience it. How wonderful we have these types of promises, truths in the Word of God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You're with me. You know, you come to a point in life that last last part where no one can go with you as you transition from from this life to eternity. Uh, No one can go with you except God. For you are with me. Even though I go through the valley, that deep, dark valley. And you know, you get close to death and you know, as Janie's mom was not well the last couple of weeks, uh, she never wanted Janie to leave. Just stay here and hold my hand. Uh, we, we want somebody with us. But there comes a time where nobody can go with you. But God goes with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? You're with me. The Lord who is my shepherd, even there he leads his children. Matthew 28, 20, teaching them, Christ in the Great Commission here, uh, at the end of it says, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews thirteen five. let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you no, nor forsake you. Belonging to Jesus Christ means we will never be forsaken. Romans eight thirty eight and 39, precious promises. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ten things are stated here. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Absolutely nothing. But Jesus was separated from God in an an indescribable way. On the cross, during those last three dark hours, that was his experience. Verse 47, some of those who stood there, when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. You know, Eli Eli sort of sounds a little bit like Elijah. So when Jesus quoted from Psalm 22, 1, some thought he was calling for Elijah. And verse 48 says, immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. Now there's some discussion over whether this was more mockery or was this an act of mercy. Possibly the person who did this, the intention was to help Christ clear his throat so he could speak more distinctly. And because they were trying to understand what he was saying, it might be just that simple. It would seem that what is happening here corresponds with John 19, 28 and 29, where Christ said, I thirst. And we should note that the sour wine in view here is not to be confused with the mixture of wine and gall offered earlier as seen in verse 34. This is later. And perhaps we have another allusion to uh, Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food. That was earlier. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar. ESV translates this, sour wine to drink. So there very well may be a double allusion here uh, to his earlier experience on the cross and then also to what we have here right at the end. Verse 49, the rest said, let him alone, let him alone. Uh, Let us see if Elijah will come down to save him or Elijah will come to save him. Elijah in the Old Testament had a ministry that was uniquely accompanied with great miracles. You recall in 2 Kings chapter one, when the king Ahaziah uh, sent uh, a captain with 50 men to bring in Elijah. And Elijah called down fire and it consumed them all. Okay, that didn't work so well. Send out another delegation of 50 men. Calls down fire, destroys them all. Any volunteers? We need more men. The third commander was sent out with a delegation of 50 men. And he was not so dumb. He didn't come making any orders, but rather fell down on his knees and pleaded for his life. So perhaps they were thinking at the cross now that such an appearance by Elijah would result in fire from heaven burning up the enemies of Christ and him being delivered. I mean, Elijah had that kind of a ministry. The Jews had long been waiting for Elijah to come. And part of the Messianic fervor of the day was that Elijah was to come on the scene before Messiah. I mean, if Jesus was the true Messiah, where was Elijah? I mean, they knew the verse, right? Back here in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send to you Elijah, the prophet, before before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Elijah comes first. Then we have the Lord coming. And again, the Jews believe correctly that before Messiah can come, Elijah must come first. And to this day, most Jews do not believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. And so they're still waiting for the Messiah to come the first time. And to this day, because of that, the Jews are still waiting For Elijah to come. At Passover, they set an empty chair for him every year, every place they are observing Passover. And then during the course of the meal, someone will go and see if he's at the door. Is this guy ever going to show up? I mean, he got an empty chair there for 2,000 years. That's a long time to have an empty chair at the table. Well, yes, actually, he is. But it will be in the context of the day of the Lord right after the rapture of the church. The Jews are still expecting Elijah to come before Messiah comes. And in this, they are right. They just don't understand that Elijah is coming in reference to Christ's second coming. You see, John the Baptist, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah who came in the power and spirit of Elijah, but he was not Elijah. As it turns out, Messiah must have a forerunner who prepares the way before him. John the Baptist was this forerunner at Christ's first coming and Elijah will be this forerunner before the second coming. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first. You got that right. Elijah is coming first who will restore all things. What does he mean? He will restore all things. Well, he's going to bring, bring revival, uh, Behold, I send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What's he going to do? He's going to turn the hearts. That's the concept of repentance. There's going to, his, his ministry is going to bring about repentance. John the Baptist also called for repentance. But he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Well, where John the Baptist failed, no fault of his own, to bring the people to repentance, Elijah will succeed. And I believe that one of the two special witnesses in the tribulation period will be Elijah. In my view, the other is probably Moses, but that's a discussion for another time. But note in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. I take that to be the first half of the tribulation period. J. Vernon McGee uh, summarized very aptly, John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah. If they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, John would have uh, been the fulfillment of the prophecy. However, since they did not accept Jesus as their Messiah at his first coming, the prophecy of Elijah as his forerunner will be fulfilled at his second coming. So when you put all the Elijah references together, it is clear that a double reference to Elijah is in view in the Scriptures. John the Baptist was a typical fulfillment. He was the forerunner who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, called Israel to repentance. And had Israel accepted Jesus as their Messiah at that time, those Elijah prophecies would, in effect, have been fulfilled in him. However, God knows all things, and he knew they wouldn't. Hence, there is uh, yet another literal fulfillment of Elijah as the forerunner to the second coming of the Messiah. So with Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, you can understand why the people were quick to make the association that perhaps he was calling on Elijah. Since the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of the coming Messiah are closely linked. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again and said with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. This was not the voice of a man whimpering on his way out, this was the strong voice. Of triumph. This was a trumpet cry announcement that echoed far and wide. It was loud. Moody Bible commentary that he still had a voice, a loud voice, is remarkable. For people who died of crucifixion usually did so in such a weakened condition that they had no voice left at all. I think this have this may have been one of the things that God used to. To where the centurion confessed, truly this was the Son of God. Now we have recorded seven sayings from the cross. Uh, we could have a sermon on each one of these. But uh, we got the seven, the seven last words of Christ. Uh, Father, forgive them. Uh, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen, the old King James. But assuredly, a woman, behold your son, behold your mother. And then here right towards the end, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished, and then finally, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We're talking really about these two uh, realities uh, I being, uh, being present, I think, in verse 50 here. It seems that these last two sayings were spoken almost in the very same breath. Basically, with his last breath, Christ cried out, It is finished, And then said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Now we believe this loud voice was especially in relationship to it is finished because of what we read in John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I mean, that's the order John gives very close succession. Well, clearly as recorded by John, essentially the last thing Jesus said was, it is finished. And gave up his spirit. The loud voice was really a victory cry. Jesus had suffered indescribably, physically, mentally, spiritually. He'd gone through the darkness of the, of the God-forsaken experience of hell in pain for sin. But now, but now, it was completed. It is finished. The phrase, it is finished, is actually the translation of just one word in Greek. It's the word tetelestai. The exact same form of this word is found just a couple of verses earlier in John 19, 28, where it says, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished. There it's translated as accomplished. I mean, we could translate this accomplished. That's the right sense. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. Jesus had finished what he came to do, namely to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Tetelestai can also have the sense of of something finished in the sense of a completed payment. In Matthew 17, 24, it is used in reference to paying the temple tax. In Romans 13, 6, it's used in reference to paying taxes. Tetelestai was a common word used in everyday life in Jesus' day. When someone paid their taxes or made a purchase, they would receive a receipt that that had tetelestai stamped on it, indicating they had paid in full. Accomplished. It's finished. It's paid in full. Jesus on the cross paid for our sin debt in full. It is finished. And when it's finished, you can't add anything more to it. There's nothing else to be done. It's blasphemy, sheer blasphemy to say, I must somehow make a contribution. You did make a contribution. You did all the sinning and Jesus does all the saving. That's the only... You make no contribution to your, your salvation. Jesus alone is Savior his blood alone cleanses from all sin. It is finished. And Jesus alone finished it. You see, there was no one else with Jesus on the cross. He singularly did it. We don't say, we finished it. He finished it. The sin, date is, the sin debt is paid in full by Christ and Christ alone. When we get to heaven, we won't say to Jesus, we did it. It's not going to be like the Super Bowl when the team that wins are all jumping around in a circle and they, they say, look what we, we won. You know, we're, we're the greatest. We, we did it. No, we read in Revelation chapter 5, 10,000 times 10,000, the largest number, the way you could say it in the Greek is stated here. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of redeemed people are saying to Jesus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All of heaven joins in. No one in heaven is singing their own praises. There's no backslapping, say, Hey, brother, you really did great. No, no. Everyone is giving all the glory to the Lamb. He alone is the Savior. He alone died for all of our sins. To Him alone belongs all the glory. This is why it is so offensive when somebody says, Yeah, but I've got a tack on my little sacraments. Blasphemy. It's absolute blasphemy to say it's not finished. I have to add my little two cents. Revelation chapter 7. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed with white robes. Christ took all of our sin. We're now clothed with His righteousness. Clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice saying, What are they saying? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to The Lamb. God alone is responsible for salvation, and all of heaven knows it. The wages of sin is death, and Christ paid our death payment in full. Indeed, worthy is the Lamb. Final words from the cross it is finished. This is the central fact of our salvation. It's what we remember every, week, every time we have communion. It's what we are not to forget. It is to be front and center in terms of our mind at all times. This is everything to us forever and ever. Amen. True belief does not add to these final words, but rather says, Amen. Horatius Bonar in faith wrote, Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole life eternity. When you consider what Jesus went through, to try and add anything to his finished work is sheer ignorance and unbelief. And again, it's frankly blasphemy to say it is not finished, which is what a person is saying when they add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross. Even good things. Yeah, we're saved by what Jesus did, but I'm also saved by my baptism. We're saved by what Jesus, but I'm also saved by my good works. Blasphemy. To add good works or religious rituals as a requirement for salvation is to deny the all-sufficient finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The hill to die on is the, cro- is the cross that Jesus died on. Spurgeon rightly said, Human nature's way of salvation is do, do, do. But God's way of salvation is done. Done. It is all done. You have but to rely by faith on the atonement which Christ accomplished on the cross. This is the gospel of grace. The gospel of law, a false gospel, says it's all up to you. The gospel of grace says Jesus paid it all. It's a gift. That's grace. The emphasis of Christ as our great high priest, with regard to His sacrificial work, is that quote: "When He had by Himself by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on High." Hebrews one three, and again in Hebrews ten twelve. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You see, the Old Testament priests never sat down. Their work was never done. There was always more sacrifices, which were pictures constantly going on. There was no chairs in the temple. But Jesus has sat down because his work is finished. And we read in Hebrews chapter 10, By one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified note uh, it's uh, all done by him by one offering he he has done it and notice it's by one offering it's not by two or it's not by ongoing offerings no by one offering this one all sufficient offering never needs to be repeated and by that one offering of the cross notice he has perfected forever Notice, He has perfected forever. We don't do it. He did it all. You can't get any better than perfected. And you can't get any longer than forever. This is why we sing His praises. And we will for all eternity. Give Him all the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then essentially in the same breath, and I've got four minutes to finish Three pages. So, (laughs) I will be brief. Yeah, right. But a good one. Uh, And then, essentially, in the same breath, Jesus yielded up his spirit. Spirit is the word pneuma, which could be translated spirit or breath. In his last breath, we read in Luke 23 what he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Earlier in the dark, lonely experience of becoming sin for us, Jesus addressed, the Father as my God. Now having won the battle, he again says, Father. And this encapsulates the idea of dependence upon God, a reliance that defined his entire earthly ministry and experience. And yet, note it says, he yielded up his spirit. The word yielded means to release or dismiss. This is the language Uh, Showing that he was sovereignly in control of his death. Uh, The death of Jesus was different than the death of any other person. Uh, No one took his life from him. He yielded it up. He said in John 10, 18, no one takes my life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. Death was on Jesus' terms. Even in death, he is the sovereign Lord. Jesus voluntarily yielded up his spirit. J. Vernon McGee says, As a pastor, I have often heard the death rattle. I can relate. The gasp for the last breath, which we all want so badly. Our Lord didn't go that way. He dismissed his spirit. He went willingly. And why did he go? It was love. John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. And then in verse 8, Romans 5, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can't begin to fathom the greatness of his love. There is no way to adequately describe the sheer magnitude of Christ's love. In Ephesians three eighteen, Paul speaks of the four dimensions of Christ's love in terms of its breadth, its length, its height, and its depth. This is like trying to measure infinity. John Gill The old uh, Baptist commentator said, The love of God, which in its length reaches from one eternity to another, in its breadth to all the elect in all the ages, places, and nations, and in its depth to the saints in the lowest state of life, and in its height to bring them to an exalted state in glory forever and ever. At the end of the day, all we can do is say thank you. As Paul says, thanks be unto God for his indescribable gift. Well, it's all about what we do with Jesus. He's done it all. Now we need to accept him. We need to receive him for who he is as our all-sufficient Savior, as the one who then rose from the dead the third day. The Bible is very clear. He came to his own. His own received him not, but as many as received him to them He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name. Well, history, say, uh, history states Christ died. It's a matter of history. Theology explains Christ died for sins. Salvation through faith appropriates. Christ died for my sins and as my Lord he rose again. Is he your personal Savior and Lord? This is the issue in time and for all eternity. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.